Welcome to Sales in the Subscription Economy, Season 1, Episode 16. I'm Amanda Northcutt of SubscriptionCoach.com, and my guest today is Executive Coach J. Ryan Williams. Ryan is the former VP of Sales turned Executive Coach. He works with CEOs and emerging leaders and new VPs of sales, particularly through challenges with revenue, building teams, and scaling companies. He is a Y Combinator alum, certified executive coach from the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, and also holds a master's from the University of Chicago. Ryan's been coaching clients ranging from U.S. Navy SEALs to CEOs who have been backed by Google, A16Z, YC, and other top VCs in Silicon Valley. Wow. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for having me. You bet. We are thrilled to have you share some sales wisdom with us today. And with that, let's dive into the questions. First off, tell us a little bit more about your career, where you've been, how you got to where you are now, and a bit about your role as an executive coach. Well, I'll, I'll work backwards. You know, I, I started my coaching practice because I identified the thing that I wish I had when I was a VP of sales. I was at a SaaS company, YC-backed data company, and um, I wish I had more of an external sounding board someone helped me work through challenges and problems. And then I also had a consulting client who told me I was a really bad consultant. And he stopped one day. Ouch. He's like, you know, uh, you're, you're really bad at this consulting thing, but I learned something every time you come to my office, like you should be an executive coach. And it made me laugh and also mortified me because I had been consulting for three years at that point. And I was like, man, that's nice to finally get, you know, some, some real truth. And, um, and that's what really triggered the, how do I help people the way I wish that I had? And so that's, that's, that's what mm. the foundations of my coaching business were. And then I got certified by, as you mentioned, the intro Berkeley's Haas School of Business has an executive coaching institute. I spent time there to really kind of hone the craft. That was a couple of years ago at this point. And now I've done probably... 3,000 hours of workshops and I've worked with, you know, over, over 500 CEOs in 14 countries. So I, I've, I've coached a lot, but it really has come out of the experience, not so much of here's all the things I've done, but really here's the type of support I wish I had when I was making some of those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that bias stems from, you know, a sales career that's fairly predictable and that I did the SDR job and I, then doing an account executive job and I, and I sold for quite a bit. I was employee 15 at a um, online media company that was the fastest growing business in 2012 and 13 uh, by Inc magazine standards, the fastest wow. growing advertising business. So we grew about 13,000% uh, in 2011 and, and 15,000% in 2012. And that company was called adroll.com. Um, it's now known as next Roll, but I got a chance to see what it looks like to join, you know, under 15 employees and go over 600 people. Uh, When I started, we were struggling to get to about $400,000 a year. And my last day at AdRoll, we did $750,000 in one day. Whoa. And, uh, And so I got to see what happens when you set up offices around the world, what happens when... Uh, strong account executives grow into managers and leaders. At one point, the mid-market team had 10 leaders and eight had come off my group. And so uh, just seeing that kind of growth within an organization really kind of showed me what I say, like kind of seeing the movie on on big company growth um, and big opportunities. And so like I had a great time doing that. Um, I've, then I ran sales uh, 
at a couple of other startups and got a chance to kind of see what the executive function is. And my last kind of full-time real job, if you will, um, as a VP of sales, I got to see the conversation that led to a $15 million series B uh, fundraise. And so, um, so I've seen a lot of those experiences, but the thing you should know about me is that I started late. Um, what they would call late bloomer. I did a almost 10 year career in social work and education before I ever got into sales and, and then a few years of sales before I ever got into subscription sales. So, um, so I had a chance to see a, a very different world, a world full of helpers. I got a master's degree in social work from university of Chicago. Cause I was at that time, I thought I'd run the boys and girls club. And so, um, that I realized that, you know, being in a sales organization can, you can use some of those same helping skills that I was using in education and using in social work. And so that really kind of informs how I am as a leader, but also how I am as a coach. Wow. What a unique background. And I'm sure your social work has just truly informed uh, your coaching and has probably uh, allowed you to do some things that, you know, other coaches cannot simply because they haven't had that kind of experience, but coming, coming to a coaching engagement in you know, the private sector with kind of that heart for mentorship and leadership mentioning, like, I wanted to run the boys and girls club, you know, what a fantastic foundation you've laid um, as a coach. And I'm also really excited to talk about uh, a little bit later on in the, in the podcast about uh, interviewing and scaling and kind of any secret sauce that you guys had to hire at the rate that you did and test for cultural fit and continue to develop out your culture. So I think this is going to be a really, really interesting conversation. I'm really excited. Um, all right. What sources do you rely on to stay up to date with revenue generation, leadership, and team building? Well, I'd say, you know, one thing that I use heavily is, is audiobooks through Audible. You know, I, I like, you know, having, having something in the earbuds when I go for walks and, um, and sometimes I'm working around the house or cooking or things like that. So, um, we'll talk a little bit about books here. I think that's, that's also coming up as a question. So Mm -hmm. we'll go into what that is, but, um, on the podcast side, I, I love what's going on with the Saster podcast and Harry Stebbings. Um, the advice that is offered through that podcast is often very timeless and also um, some sometimes controversial. You know, he'll have guests on that that conflict each other, maybe even week to week. And I think that makes for a really good conversation. Any revenue leaders having internally as they bring sources, you know, like this podcast and others into their life, uh, knowing what does it fit for me. You know, I mentioned being bad at consulting. Well, the reason that is is because I don't think the consultant is always right think about that for a minute. You hire a consultant because you want the answer, but I don't think there's any one specific way to do that. And so that means that you have to go ahead and, and open yourself up to a lot of different ideas, synthesize, and then decide what makes sense for your organization. Not, I'm going to go do everything. You know, Mark Roberts has a great book on sales. You go and, and, and read the sales acceleration formula, but no one is building HubSpot 12 years ago right now. If you don't have a time machine and, and that's not the company you're building. So you read that book and you think about, okay, does this fit today? Does this fit with my company? Does this fit with my size of company or my goal or my industry? Um, so, so those are the types of things that, that I do uh, mm-hmm. to kind of stay up to date. And then, you know, there's another piece, which is, you know, on social, I'm really active on LinkedIn and you, you know, feel free to, to connect. It's just J Ryan Williams. And, and I should 
pop up. The um, I like to, to read the content that's on LinkedIn, but I also know that people doing a really good job at social media right now are attempting to be more controversial, to be more readable through, you know, sparking the fire. And so there is some rants and raves and there are some people picking fights and trolling just like there are on other platforms. And so I would just say to anybody who's thinking, okay, where are other sources for me to go and get wisdom? Uh, LinkedIn can be a great one if you run it through that filter of what is the goal of this post? Is this goal of the post to share a war story about sales or something else? Is this goal to start a conversation about buying my product? And so as you run that filter, um, I think that can be really, really helpful. And then, you know, one thing I would, I'd, I'd want to kind of call out is that my career has been absolutely pushed in positive directions from relationships with vendors. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, what can I do to next level? I'm not around the leaders that I normally kind of fuel off of at my office because I'm working at home right now. Think about um, before you go call a vendor and say, oh, we just need to cut this platform off or we're turning this off to, to cost save. Spend some time and learn about what other people are doing. You know, the vendor, whether it's the salesperson or the account manager or, or customer success agent that you're working with, ask them, who's the best at this? I learn so much in, you know, and in, in my career, I, I basically, when the sales acceleration uh, tool started to show up about eight, eight or nine years ago, it was the vendors that told me what everybody else was doing. And uh, that gave me the chance to build out a sales operations team for 300 employees. Hmm. And, um, and it was the vendors who said, oh, no, this thing plugs in there and this company is doing X. And um, when Salesforce came to see me, I was a new VP of sales. They wanted to upgrade the account. Fine. Um, the, the rep came out and she brought a sales engineer. And uh, that sales engineer was awesome. And I asked her, hey, look at our instance and tell me if our team is doing it right. How does this compare to your other clients? You know, we just kind of opened up our instance and just said, hey, let's look at this together. And she basically said that the guy who had been hired as an executive assistant to my predecessor, who had taught Salesforce himself, had built out a workflow she'd never seen before and thought it was genius. Mm. Uh, and, and so think about that, right? You're new, you're trying to figure out if your team is good. Um, and here I am with this, you know, absolute diamond in the rough, young man named Adam, who was just turned into a total rock star, but it was that validation that I got from a vendor to know that we're going the right direction. So um, I think if I had to offer just one a place to stay up to date, it's, you know, spending time with your vendors. If you're somebody who's in a place where you're informing how your company uses a tool, and especially if you're selling a subscription and someone else sold a subscription to you, ask them how they came up with their pricing. Ask them how they sell it. Ask them what their team is like, how they manage the account and what they're trying to do in your account. Um, just like I, I would often ask my Salesforce rep, hey, of all the accounts that you're managing, like where do we stack in terms of number of seats, in terms of spend, and you know, find out <laughs> where we're at the pecking order. That was really just to figure out if I'd get free Dreamforce tickets, but <laughs> that's not a thing anymore. <laughs> that's a great 
tip and answer. Um, I love how, I mean, all of our vendors that we're using at this point uh, should be pursuing thought leadership in their area. And so, you know, kind of going, going to that well, you're already paying them, you know, what else can they tell you and give you? And I like, uh, I like the idea of not trying to reinvent the wheel, but see how others have succeeded and trying to draw inspiration and kind of emulate from their success. So that's a great tip. And nobody said that before. So awesome. Good. All right. All time favorite business books. Okay, so I was thinking about this and then you said all time and it kind of shook me up a little bit because <laughs> I don't know that I've got like the all time go-to books. The things that are on my shelf right now that I want every leader to read, um, there's there's a book by um, Michael Bungay Stainer and I don't know that I'm ever saying his name right. We haven't met in person and that book is called The Coaching Habit. And there's a new book he just released called The Advice Trap. And anybody who's running a team or interacting with others at work should think a little bit about coaching versus just telling people what to do. Mm. You know, um, formats like this are great because I'm going to give you all the advice in the world. But, but it is a trap when a leader is working one-on-one -on -one with somebody else, whether it's a peer or a subordinate or somebody on their team or a vendor even, and just says, this is what you should do as opposed to leading with questions. Yeah. And so that's, that's, I think a great book to, to think about that. I've recommended it a ton. There's an awesome book called presence by Amy Cuddy and Amy is awesome. She's got known for a Ted talk about the power pose where she puts her fists on her hips, like wonder woman, <laughs> breathe in and, and to, to basically change your mental attitude based on your own body language. Hmm. Um, and so if you're not familiar with Amy's work, it'd be tempting to look at the pod or the uh, Ted talk and, or, or podcast or something and make a decision. But I thought the book presence goes into so much more depth that it's something that sales leaders should read because, you know, we're always thinking about how we're perceived, how we come across in the sale or with our teams, but also because a big piece of this job is mentoring others developing others. And so many of us, you know, I think in the book, she said that 80% of the students in her study had faced imposter syndrome. You know, she's a professor at Harvard when she was doing that study. And so you think about, okay, if 80% of her students have imposter syndrome, then I might be someone who's afflicted by that too. Imposter yeah. syndrome is simply not feeling like you belong in a space that you're in, a group that you go to or a level in your company. And, um, and that, can be something that I think is worthy of really digging into. So I would, I would start there with those two authors in terms of all time favorites. Um, I got to give a shout out to Rich Park I, I, who introduced us yeah. in his episode. He talks about Peter Drucker's effective executive. Yep. And I think the book is, is a little bit dated, Rich, if you're listening, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I know that the question was all time, so I'm not dinging you for how old the book is, but when you read it with the lens and thinking, okay, this is what good post-war management advice look like in you know the 50s and 60s uh with which is the research set kind of the post-world war ii era um okay i get that like that makes a lot of sense on on where that advice comes from but what i really like about the book for a new executive is reading that book with the filter of the does this work for me does this work for today mm. And um, that can be a great book because some of the examples are dated and either are, you know, military examples that right. aren't coming up as much because warfare has changed quite a bit, just like business has changed quite a bit. You know, I, I don't know that GE was selling subscriptions back then. Maybe they were, um, but, uh, but their, you know, SaaS was invented since then, right? So um, read that book and really ask yourself, hey, does this 
tool or technique work for me and work for today. And I think that would lead to really kind of a cool experience if you're a new executive. Yeah, that's a great point. I like that lens to read through that book. And it's a quick read. It's, it's really, really a quick and easy read, especially if you're kind of skimming through because um, while it was novel at the time, now we've kind of enacted many of those Peter Drucker principles. And so, uh, yeah, it's a great yeah. read. All right, let's talk a little bit about sales. Have you found, yes. yeah, have you found working with or on sales teams in recurring revenue organizations different than a traditional organization with one-time transaction sales? Why or why not? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I worked in both environments and I, honestly have loved both. When I was selling at an ad agency, I liked that we could sell almost anything and sell it once, do the job, figure out how to do it. And then if we wanted to repeat that sale, that was with a new customer. Hmm. That is a different, that is a different beast. Um, and uh, for anybody who hasn't been in an organization like that, it looks kind of like saying the project that you want to do is going to cost $50,000 I need $25,000 to start. Um, Claire is the best account manager we have. She's available if we do a kickoff call on Tuesday. I think you should snap her up. If, um, if you want to start now, uh, just fax me a copy of the check that you're sending today so I can tell my boss it's okay to start. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds super salesy to me, especially <laughs> when I think about like wanting to have a long-term relationship with a SaaS client. But that's what that it, life is like at an ad agency. Um, especially a creative development agency where you're building something for someone uh, and you need an advanced payment to pull the team together. And turns out Claire is the best account manager because she's the one available. And then it's, you know, uh, Amanda was the next one in line. And then after that, it was, I forget the rest of their names, but, um, but that, I think that sale is very different when selling the subscription, it's tempting to kind of use some of those same sales habits of, you know, close today, I can get you a 10% discount. Um, but, you know, the whole point of subscription is to have a long-term relationship. And so many salespeople miss that piece of that long relationship. They want to close something and throw it over the fence. And, and, uh, and so, you know, when I was address, you know, I had a challenge like that when I was a VP of sales and I had a great customer success leader that I was, that I was working with who came to every one of my sales meetings and we worked together really well on accounts. We sold together really well on accounts and we got to role model some good behaviors. We're both new executives, so we role modeled plenty of bad behaviors, I'm sure too, but <laughs> we showed the team that, um, you know, a point that, that came from her work, her name is Brianna Salinas and some of you might want to think about having on, but Brianna talked about how we should sell like VCs and she really pushed the team to think like VCs uh, in that um, what businesses are going to continue to grow, let's sell to those. What businesses are continuing to develop and want to innovate and could, could take the fact that we were going to be innovating too and roll with that um, you have those options when you're selling subscription that you you don't really have if it's a one-time hit transactional sale. Um, like I was selling a website for someone. Yeah, there was some say on and pay us a monthly retainer to do some you know search engine optimization or marketing stuff, but it really wasn't the let's have a five-year partnership as our companies grow. You know, I mentioned at the top that I was at AdRoll and we were listed in the Inc. 5,000 is like the, one of the top 10 businesses and the number one ad agent ad, advertising business a couple times. 
But if you looked at that list of top 10, you would have found five or six out of 10 of those other top businesses that were kind of breakout new success businesses Mm. were also our clients. And what happened was there's a a purveyor of um, women's clothing uh, called Nasty Gal. I don't know if they're still in business, but they, you know, they, they did a lot of like, kind of like the, um, you know, twenties fashion dance, you know, dance club gear type stuff. Um, I can show you how very uncool I am and that that's what I'm calling it. But, um, but anyway, they, you know, they were on the list right alongside us and we were, I think one of the first advertising tools they used when they connected with John, the sales rep who worked with them. And so he was teaching them a lot about how they should advertise, what their retargeting strategy is, how to bring people back to their website, how to capitalize on, on the uh, people who are looking at their stuff and, and making considered purchase, you know, you know, hundred, $200 pair of shoes is a considered purchase, especially in your early twenties. Right. So um, when, uh, and, and I was really kind of interested in that. And we saw that for a lot of companies that we were one of their first advertising partners and we, we built our companies together. And as we grew, you know, account reps change, sales reps change, people on their team change, they hire a director of marketing, so you don't work with the CEO anymore. Um, people kind of fall out of touch. But really when those companies have come up together and had a rich history, like I think that's one of the things that's really hard to maintain unless you're selling something that's really changing the way the organization works year after year. Uh, it can be really hard to kind of keep that executive attention. But um, but those are some of the things. I don't know if I gave you the clear, like here are three differences, but... Um, <laughs> But, if, but, but it is very different. And I think it all starts with mindset. Mm, yeah. Those are great examples. Thanks for sharing all that with us. Uh, what about some of the most common challenges your client or changes your clients are making to their businesses in the face of the econo- economic challenges brought on by COVID-19? Well, I mean, the big challenge everyone's going to call out is working from home. You know, my team works from home. How do I know that they're working? And I think, what I've seen is leaders who are using this time to find new ways to connect with the individual. And instead of, instead of just starting every call with, so how are you, how are you doing? Um, those are, that's actually a really tough question for a lot of people to answer. And I, and I think it's hard to, to realize that as, as leaders, as communicators, as, as, um, folks who are running teams, right? We, that's putting a lot on someone to, to, basically stake a claim in the ground and say how they're doing. Of course they're doing great. Like, okay, this is rough, but I'm doing great. Don't, don't look at me as somebody who's not doing great because I know we are making changes. We are making cuts. We do need to downsize the team. So great is going to be the answer. And that puts a lot of pressure on that rep or that person. And instead I would just say, you know, find, let's find some new questions. And you know, that's a very open-ended question. How are you doing? Well, uh, another way to, to ask those questions are to be more specific, you know, scale of one to 10. How's today compared to yesterday? You know, today's a, today's an eight. Yesterday was a six. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that is one of the greatest coaching questions you could ever ask Yeah, because it allows someone to really highlight what they think is interesting. You know, I worked for this manager. Uh, we'll call him Brian because that was his name and I would not mind calling him out and pointing to him if he was in a lineup. Uh, we've since lost touch. <laughs> but what Brian would do is he would ask a question. Oh, how, how are you, you know, how are you doing? And I'd say, Oh, well, if I said, Oh, today's about a six, 
he would know why that is immediately. He'd say, oh, because uh, you didn't get your parking spot. Uh, and it was almost like he was out of that show, um, uh, The Office, right? Because he was <laughs> that kind of out of touch. He wasn't in full Michael Scott, and that would do him too much justice. But it'd be like if Andy Bernard was running The Office for a year mm-hmm. that this character was. And he really rubbed me the wrong way, but um, but wouldn't, wouldn't ever allow me, because he thought it was a, a, a place for him to show what he knew and how in touch he was to tell right. me what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just one example. We did this in probably 15 or 20 different areas on a weekly basis. Um, it was a long year and a half. But, um, but anyway, <laughs> my, point, my point is that this is a great opportunity for you, even if you're freaking out on the inside as a leader, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to rethink how you want to interact with people, what you want those conversations to be. How do you get to a place where, where you know, having a walk and talk on the phone where somebody is in there, you know, walking in their neighborhood and getting a break from Zoom. How do you get that conversation going? How do you get to some real stuff? How do you say, you know what, we want to do a team meeting, but we're going to talk about anything but work and COVID uh, so that we remember that we're all human and we're all people. Hmm. Um, now, there are some big changes too, right? There are some, you know, what are the systems you're putting in place? Uh, realizing that video call, call needs to be high quality. One of the um, people that I follow is somebody who brought in an, an ergonomic consultant to do Zoom consultations with her team. Hmm. I thought that was an amazing idea. Yeah. Um, that, you know, and, and I can't remember what the consulting shop was she used, but, um, but she was talking about how, it, you know, at the end of the first month, she felt different pains in her back because of her at-home setup. You know, I'm talking to you from a desk that's probably three inches lower than my usual desk. And, and my chair is, you know, more stiff than I'm used to. Um, that's going to take its toll over time. Uh, and so that's a simple win where you can still make it about the employees. You know, some people are giving spiffs or thing like, hey, everybody gets a hundred bucks to customize their setup. Yeah. Um, you know, hundred bucks. I can, I can blow that on Amazon very quickly. It can get resolved <laughs> a lot of things. Um, but, uh, you know, we want all the employees to have a light source that they feel good about. I've got this one. I was thinking this is a video podcast. It's too bad because I've got this one light where every time I turn it on, I get compliments on my skin. And most of, most of the people I do video calls with are other men. And they, you know, <laughs> it's not a compliment I hear very often in person. But when I have this particular LED light on, it happens quite a bit, um, which makes me smile because it's like, hey, I'm, I'm proud of my setup because I, I work hard to make sure that I can, I can try to be a media mogul. I don't know. Those are just some <laughs> of the things. Being open to all kinds of things that, that fit in this new world, I think, is really important. Yeah, great points. And, you know, as sales leaders, we should be professional question askers, but we often forget that when we're coaching our own teams, <laughs> what are the best questions we, we can ask them to actually get to the heart of the issue or the problem? So I love the, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? Hmm, you know, and kind of some mirroring and, and things that we can do to be more empathetic humans as people are struggling. I mean, you and I were talking in the pre-interview about having our young children running around in the background. And yeah, um, I think how- I heard them both. Did I hear your <laughs> kid and, and mine uh, at the same time a minute ago? Oh yeah. My kid's like running up and down the hallway. I mean, I just, yeah. you know, it is what it is at this point. We're, we're so far into this thing, but yeah. yeah. 
I appreciate, I appreciate you bringing that to the table. Um, that is something we, we all need to remember um, as sales leaders as we're t- trying to take care of our teams, not just our customers, but our teams. So good, good points. All right, what's your best advice for sales teams competing in the subscription economy right now, given the current economic situation? Well, <clears throat> competing, I think competing is an interesting word in that question, right? Um, competition could be something that you look at as a, um, you know, I, one of the books I didn't mention that I really liked was Simon Sinek's infinite game Mm. where he talks about, you know, basically optimizing for multiple outcomes as opposed to like a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. Um, That book might make your head spin. If you think about, you know, whether it's your local community and how you're managing some of the COVID things or your even just yesterday's trip to the supermarket, I came home last night with a full meltdown from the supermarket experience I had. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my advice for a sales team that's really competing in the subscription economy is to realize that, it, that it's not zero sum. Um, the, the CFO of your client may say, we have to reduce costs by 50%. And that means that they're going to cut certain things. They might say that, and that feels very... Um, very like zero sum, right? Like there's, there's, or sorry, um, the other way around that, that may feel very like very finite, you know, there are five vendors and everybody's competing for the 50 K in that budget. Um, think about it instead as there's a lot of other things you can compete for, right? You can compete for, you know, somebody, you know, that somebody has just cut their team in half and you sell subscription seats. So, you know, one option would be to go to them and say, actually, do you want to upgrade everybody who's left with, you know, even though we don't normally do an upgrade or we don't normally do it this way, is there something more I can give? You know, in advertising, if we screwed up, we'd call that a make good where it's like Mm -hmm. we would, you know, instead of giving a discount, we would just go back and say, hey, can we, can we fix this by giving you this thing that, that you want? My family's from Louisiana where when we throw in something extra in that shopping bag, we call that lanyap. Lanyap, yeah. <laughs> a little gift, right? You know about this being from Texas. It, it, it drifts across the line quite a bit, right? And so giving a little bit of something extra is not a bad thing right now. Um, and the other thing, you know, a lot of people forget is, so you get that call saying, hey, sorry, we're going to cancel our membership or uh, pause our subscription or downgrade our seats or whatever, you know, ex- exercise an early termination clause or whatever, whatever is happening. Um, when you're hit with bad news, kind of square in the chest like that, there's a few options. One could be to try to immediately, like this is the Brian move, right? Oh, I know exactly why this is, or I saw this release. I know that you're cutting employees. Um, another option is to, stop and take a breath and say, man, I'm glad you called instead of just sending an email. This must've been a hard call to make. Mm-hmm. Show that empathy, spend a little time with them. What else, what else are you guys changing? We'll get back to our account, but how are you doing? You know, I have a really good friend who uh, was a vendor as well. And I went through a situation where we were trying to uh, we thought the economic meltdown was coming in 2017. And so my, my boss that I'd worked for basically said, cut all non-essential tools. And um, it happened to be while I was out of the office. And so one of the guys on my team did exactly what he was asked to do by the CEO. And he cut a bunch of stuff out. One of the vendors was affected was somebody I was really close with that I should have called first. Mm. And he texted me, he just said, is everything okay? And I had no idea what it was. I was getting out of the elevator. I got this guy's text. So I called him back and I was like, hey, what's, what do you mean? 
And he goes, oh, well, maybe you don't know this, but you guys just, just cut our relationship out. But he wasn't calling as a vendor. He was calling to make sure that I still had a job. Mm. Like, hey, you guys just turned this off. I, it was a, a product that helps the sales team work. So I assume that, you know, there is a, you know, if you had a sales team, you'd still need us. You know, and what happened was there wasn't anybody to explain why his tool was actually on the essential side, um, but uh, which was too bad, but that wasn't what he was calling about. He was calling to check on me. He was calling to check on the team. He was calling to see if relationships he had would be helpful for soft landing for anybody. Wow. That, think about that. Like that's an absolutely amazing response. Now, you know, several years later, he's still giving me a hard time about it because I wasn't <laughs> there that day to stick up for why. And honestly, if it had been my call, that product would have stayed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think it's a, a brilliant coaching tool. But, um, but here's, here's my point. You know, not everything is the way it seems on the surface. And when you get that call, when somebody's trying to adjust their account or trying to downgrade uh, or whatever that is, there's more going on. There's also more you can ask for, right? So, you know, you could say, hey, well, this would be a great time for me to understand how you use the product. What, what went well? What didn't go well? Yeah. Let's do a review and let's not be afraid to ask for a video testimonial because, hey, they might be willing to give something even though they've got to cut back. Um, You know, you're cutting back 80% of your seats. That's a great time for me to lick my wounds and go back to my forecast and try to update my VP on, on how horrible this is. Or I can say, wow, sounds like we're going to be essential for the employees that are left. Can we get our marketer on the phone and maybe do a, a, a three-way vi- video interview to find out what you're doing with the product and what's changed? Mm. That may be a long answer, man. I'm sorry. But, but my thought is just simply that things are not as they seem on the surface. And so if you try to compete thinking that you're in the same game that you were in two, three, four months ago, um, then, then you haven't updated. You haven't had the updated rule book. Uh, and, and things are just going to be very, very different right now. And so there's a sudden meltdown for some people. Uh, there is uh, an uptick for others. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I really like how you're giving specific, I mean, even words to how to handle it when um, reps get called for accounts to be canceled. I mean, I love the actual actionable language there. And so VPs listening to this, make sure you're coaching your team up on how to do that. And um, I mean, this is a very specific, concrete example of how to be an empathetic human. I mean, we all want our reps to be ones who are remembered like the one that Ryan has just recounted to us. So those are great points. Um, All right, let's talk just for a minute about cross-departmental communication. So when you're working with sales teams, uh, how do you address cross-departmental communication uh, within those organizations? For instance, you know, how do you help sales be intertwined with product, marketing, engineering, customer success, and so on? That's, I mean, that's a great question because it comes up a lot in my coaching practice. I spend most of my time with new VPs of sales or emerging leaders, directors who are taking over new teams or a job has changed for them. And this is, this is one that comes up quite a bit on, you know, how do I start to communicate with marketing now that that's part of my job or mm-hmm. um, how do I go to a product meeting and tell them what we need when product always has an answer for why they're not going to build that thing that your client asked for. Right. Um, so when thinking about cross department communication, I, I, I want to map out the goals and just understand the goals. And there's, there's one really easy shortcut that I think many people forget about. 
actually, I hope that only the people I've talked to have forgotten about it and the rest of the world does this seamlessly and will think this is not that helpful. <laughs> that would be great news. So if that's the case, please comment on this episode and tell me that, uh, that this is not crazy and that everybody does this except for me and my you know, 20 people I've told about this. <laughs> Your leaders at work have probably published their goals. If you're a public company, it's in an annual report or it's in a letter to shareholders. If you're at a small private company uh, startup, it might be something like OKRs, objective and key results, mm -hmm. or, or somebody has published their KPI, their key performance indicator. When that happens, it's your leadership, whether it's the you're a VP and, and you're looking at your CEO and, and she's published what she's doing uh, with the whole company and then it comes down to you. At Salesforce, it's a doc called the V2 Mom, but it lays out everybody ahead of you and, and what their goals are. Well, it's easy to look at that and say, you know, the level one is write them for yourself and then, then tell everybody how this comes back to your goal right? That's level one. Mm -hmm. Level two is talk about how your goals interface with your director or your VP's goals, right? Or your boss or CEO or your board, whatever. Um, level three is to understand other departments, right? So think about a CFO who puts on their OKR. Um, our, our goal this quarter is to have enough cash on hand to launch an office in Japan, you know, we don't want to table this plan. We know it's essential for our growth model. We're going to do this. And this is a real story. This came out of my experience. That role CFO puts a slide up that says, hey, this is what I'm doing to make sure we can afford the next five goals that are coming from the CRO. Mm. CRO stands up and says, yep, you just heard Peter say that we're launching Japan. Here's what this means for us. Here's what I'm doing. Here's, you know, revenue. Here's teams. Here's my goals. Right now, when I see that Japan is launching two quarters from now, as a, as a sales rep, that can change my flow. And, and an easy way that changes my flow is to think about uh, two things that would come from those previous presentations at all hands. One is if we don't have territories yet, I could say, oh man, I'm not going to call a single account in Japan because I know someone's going to take that territory for me from me in 18 months or maybe a year or maybe less. Right. That could be really a, that, that would be a very savvy sales rep thing to do. Yeah. But a sales rep who's thinking about how to communicate with other groups, sales rep who's thinking about being a bigger leader or taking over a team in the future might say, I'm going to spend 20% of my time prospecting this new market. And I chose Japan kind of randomly from that incident at Admiral where we decided that Japan was going to happen even though there was some uncertainty to it. Uh, but the same thing happened the year before going after the UK. And the smart rep said, hey, I'm going to spend time there and develop the playbook figure out what's different, figure out what's different about the accounts, what's different about the customers, what objections are different in this new market. Um, think about, you know, that would be something that would probably be really nice for the CRO to be able to see how early account footprints are developing in these new markets. Yeah. Well, here, what does a CFO want, right? CFO just told you in their deck, they're trying to afford that. Ask for two or three year contracts in those markets. See, I'm saying like, this is probably not the way to think about it, but I'm going to say it this way anyway. See what you can get away with as you're learning what limitations there are in that market. You know, when I was, I worked for this company called Checkmate and we sold hotel mobile check-in. And one of the best things we did, um, and I saw Steve Smith was one of your guests. I didn't get a chance to listen to that. Yeah. Steve, was, Steve was my boss at Checkmate. Really? And, uh, <laughs> one of the things that Steve did that was awesome is that uh, he sought out experiences for us to go visit 
clients, potential clients, people in the industry, essentially go and shadow industry people. And so I don't know where one, where the money came from or two, how this went down, but we ended up in the nicest hotel in the Napa Valley, the whole sales team for lunch. Nice. And so we're there and somebody had arranged, um, you know, this was, I'm sure Steve's doing, but somebody had arranged a intro to one of the managers of that property. And they took us on a tour and they showed us what a $2,000 a night hotel looks like. Um, in that room, you have your own spa, by the way, Amanda, if you're looking for somewhere to go and get your <laughs> You can get your own little spa and they've got a lot of treatments and they've got waterfalls and all kinds of amazing stuff in the room. But as the director had given us a tour around, they had a competing product. And we weren't there in a sales call. We were there just as a visit, just learning. We were, it was like a college interns, like we were walking around. And, uh, and I asked the guy, I said, hey, tell me about this, this app that you guys are using and how it's supported. And his eyes lit up and he goes, yeah, I'm the one who sponsored that purchase. I had no idea director of food and beverage could be our buyer. Hmm. Uh, and now here's somebody who I've got a new buyer now I'm coming home from this trip with. And two, he, he just, I said, well, how are you supporting that? And he smiled and he said, yeah, I got them to give us a three-year contract so I don't have to worry about that. We were selling month to month, trying, just slugging it out to get to one year. Oh, man. Here with somebody. Yeah, right. He's smiling <laughs> about the fact that he got a three-year contract. And it was, in this case, they're managing hardware too because it's running on an iPad. But um, I was like, wow, it just depends on what, you know, what side of the earth you're looking at. You know, because he, he was, she was somebody who was more than happy to pay three years. I think he might have been paid a chunk of that up front. <clears throat> take this back to how do you work with other teams? Well, if you know that about your customer, if you know your customer is open to uh, doing a longer term contract because you've been spending time in the new market and the new market is just an analogy for any goal, right? You're spending time with your boss's goal. Well, know what your boss's colleagues goals are too, because they're the ones that are trying to go talk to the CFO. If you're a VP of sales and you're trying to understand this, sit down and understand what the unit economics look like with the head of finance, CFO, or, or CEO, uh, spend time and understand what the goals are for the next fundraising round so that you can optimize what you do for success of the others around you. And that is when everybody's going to see you as a team player without you asking mm. if you're a team. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. I like being invested in each other's success, serving each other and being for each other and not, you know, working outside of these silos that we have unfortunately developed <laughs> over many years of, uh, of practice. Yeah. It, not only have we developed them, but we've also had them role modeled to us by other leaders. And yes. that's, that's a real challenge, right? So it's not your fault necessarily, but it's your opportunity to change that. The same way that as parents, we ask do I want to be the same type of parent my parent was? Well, when I went to teaching school, I had this amazing professor who stood up. His name is Dr. Brian Johnson. He stood up in front of the room and he goes, we teach the way we're taught. And then he goes to the whiteboard. You know what? It must've been a chalkboard because I remember the clicking of the chalk. So imagine like this, he's clicking the chalk, the, the dust is going everywhere. He writes it on the chalkboard and then puts the chalk down and says, we teach the way we're taught. And I just, that's not the way I learn. I don't learn from the chalkboard. And his point was crystal clear. I grew up in a school that didn't serve me well. Now I'm a teacher. I have to think if I'm going to teach the way that didn't work for me. There are things that my parents did that I don't want to do as a parent. They won't be surprised when they hear this. That, <laughs> have that feeling, right? Like we all have that. They have that from their parents. Um, and as a manager, 
just know that when you're promoted into a leadership role, you're probably going to lead the way you were led. And if you were led by someone who is really in a siloed organization who says, you know, marketing's the enemy, we're going to do this our way, then you're probably disposed to some, some tools, tactics, and tricks of the trade for being in a siloed organization. Yeah, no kidding. Um, man, that might be your first answer to my next question. Um, so let's assume that it is, but what's a one to three pieces of advice you'd give sales VPs competing in the subscription economy right now? And is that any different than what you would have said pre-COVID-19? So let's put number one as, you know, evaluate your experience with yeah. previous leadership coaches, how you were parented, whatever it is, um, and, and ask yourself, you know, is this how I want to do this or what changes do I want to make? What else? Well, Think about that, that story at the hotel from Steve's team. We, our job was to get to know the client really, really well. That's something you can do no matter what's going on in the economy. Now, is everybody available to take a coffee meeting? Well, no, they're not. Is everybody going to want to jump on a Zoom and talk to you about their day? They're not. So you got to find a way to give value for taking that value. But... Um, if there's a job that you want to go do, whether it's internal or external to your organization, you want to be promoted to that first VP of sales job, or you want to maybe take a CEO job, then uh, there are things that you know that you have learned that you can offer someone in exchange for learning about what they're going through. You can offer that in networking. Um, you can reach out to podcasts like this one and say, hey, you know what? I've never done a podcast interview, but I'd like to try you know, and, and, and send Amanda your pitch on, on what you want to talk about. And I'm sure that's something that you'd be open to entertaining, right? So like there, there, there's mm -hmm. things that you can do today um, to better yourself, but also um, understand your buyer more, right? And use a platform to learn about the buyer or think about the buyer in a new way. Uh, that's one thing. Um, as a, a sales leader, you said specifically sales VPs competing. You know, you're competing for talent. You know, I, I, I know of an organization that had a really big cut. And in this big cut, they, I'm sure, because I live this as a leader, that you take a breath afterwards, you go, okay, I've got the team I need. And the thing you don't think about is there's probably 20 to 30% of the team that's left because, wow, they just cut my friend. I'm out of here too. Mm. And, and so you, you've kind of like forced, you know, let's call it half the team that may be overestimating. It might be under right now. I don't know. People pop their head up and they start looking around for other jobs. And so as a leader, you could go and sit on top of them and make sure they don't look around. But, um, or you could take a minute to say, I want to make sure that the, the next project you're on aligns with what you want to do aligns with whatever's next for you. And then you just say, my job as your leader is to make sure that the next thing you do is also at this organization or also working for me somewhere. Mm. And that's something that you can do right now as a VP of sales to compete, to keep your talent. The one that the people that are, that have survived, if you've done downsizing, if, um, if you haven't done a downsizing, your team is worried that it's going to happen soon. They're worried about their own job. They're watching the news. Um, and, and they're thinking about it and they're worried about it and, and their mom or their parents or their support system is asking them how it's going. My mother actually has called me no less than six times to ask me if I received my stimulus check yet. Mm -hmm. 
And, I, and I'm not sure what has her finally concerned about my, my financial future. Uh, but that's something that she's really worried about. I think it's because it's a really tactical thing that she can think about and worry for us because there's, you know, being far away, she, there's a lot that, that she can't think about. She wants to make sure that, that, that we're in a good place. And I don't think she's going to send us an extra few thousand bucks. So she's hoping that the government does. But um, why do I bring that up? Because everybody's worried about something different and their family's worried about something different. When I worked for Shresh Khanna at Adderall, who uh, was a, an amazing VP and then later CRO to work for and learn from, you know, when Shresh does job offers, uh, he does the offer call. And instead of saying, and one technique is to say, hey, decide right now about this offer. Another technique is to do what Shresh does, which is, I want you to make sure you have enough time to talk this through with your family. Because he knows there's a lot of other people in the decision. Yeah. And he gives permission for that so that you're, you know, and some of the folks that we're hiring were in their first or second jobs. Like we don't want them to have to say, I need to call my dad. But <laughs> if that's the workflow, you recognize the workflow because you know your buyer. In this case, your buyer is the person who's taking the job from you, right? And so you want to sell them on this being a place to work. So you set it up so they know that it's an okay place to, that, that that's an okay process to go and talk to their family and figure out if this is right and figure out, if that's something their spouse agrees with and come back with questions from those meetings, right? He was very open to do that. Um, that's something you can do right now as you compete for talent is to start to understand what are the concerns of the other people that you don't see? You know, when you're selling a complicated deal, many of the people listening know that if you sell a deal that's a little more complicated, a little more like enterprise, you've got your buyer, you've got your signer. Sometimes they're two different people. You've got purchasing, you've got the leader behind that, you've got the other, the company CEO. You might have five or six people in a deal. CEB says there's 5.6 people in a deal. Um, then they did read to that research and they said that it hadn't changed very much. So six, let's call it six people in the deal uh, when you're selling something that's you know, anything over 10K. Well, if that's true, well, who else is in the deal on your employees? How many people are involved in that decision to stay? That decision yeah. double down. When you do a furlough or a reduction of force, or you do uh, any major cultural change, uh, I, you know one of the companies I'm familiar with just reduced salaries by 20% across the board, regardless. Mm -hmm. And in that meeting, uh, they um, there was a challenge of our clearly articulating who this affected meaning that it was not clear that the the CEO and the VPs were also taking the same hit, that new employees would be taking the same hit. And so there, there was a lot of uncertainty until that question got asked and thank God it did. Cause if that question, if nobody's bold enough to ask that question, then everybody hangs, you know, it goes in the backpack and you carry it around with you to work. Um, and so having clear lines of communications, I think is the, the simple tactical answer to what you should be doing right now. Um, so know your buyer, really get to know your employees, use this as an excuse to check in on their well-being and show them the support they need, but also understand what motivates them to stay or stay productive or keep working on your team. That's number two. And then, you know, number three is um, to, to really open up those lines of communication. Maybe this is back to our last conversation about cross-function. Uh, use this as an excuse to do your one-on-ones and re-check-ins and, and, and just treat, treat this as a new job because so much has changed. Uh, so go ahead and start 
meeting with every department head again to figure out what their revised goals are, what they're trying to accomplish. And if you miss the OKR presentation at the beginning of the quarter on what everybody's trying to do, this is your chance to know, now oh, this is what my CFO's goals are. So maybe if cash flow is the goal, maybe I should ask for a longer commitment. Um, yeah, those are, those are three things I would say. That's great. I love the emphasis on talent. Um, it is so, I mean, it's free for sales VPs to, to coach their employees and their team. And I love the kind of drawing out what motivates you. Um, how can we do right by you? How can we do what's best for you? And then, yeah, that's, we're all selling to a committee, whether that's to our family or inner circle or, you know, actual buyers sitting in a boardroom trying to decide on your product or not, or in a zoom room as it were right now. So that's <laughs> yep. great. All right. Last question. I'm a firm believer that sales makes the world go round and we have a tremendous responsibility to get the economy moving again. How can we speed up that process? Speed up the process of getting the economy moving. Yeah. We're solving the world's problems right here on this show. <laughs> we're <really> trying. <laughs> well, um, I agree with you, Amanda, that, that, that really, you know, sales has the opportunity and um, there were a lot of us in 2008, 2009, as, as we were recovering from the last slump, who, um, who had some real challenges with, you know, what's their job going to be? What are they going to do? And in my case, that's the first time I took a no base sales job, meaning that I didn't have any base pay. I was just on the commissions only. Mm-hmm it forced a lot of us into sales. And so I think that that kind of proves your point that sales is a great way to get things moving uh, because that's a place we don't have to worry about our cost center. We're just in a, in a revenue center in sales. Um, yeah, cost, there are some cost of sales, but um, there'll, there'll be a lot of people who try to minimize the cost and just think about what the upside is. Um, one is taking a cue from my nonprofit background. Now, before I had a 12 years as a sales leader and had a chance to, you know, coach 300 reps and, you know, scale up a $58 million sales team, I couldn't find a single person who cared that I was a teacher or social worker before. They all said, that's cute. That's nice. I'm sure that'll help out. Nobody said, come work for me because of that. No, mm-hmm. Not a single one person. And I'm uh, not bitter about it at all, as you can tell by the tone of my voice. <laughs> um, but... But I'll tell you something that nonprofits know that the rest of us in sales don't know. People give because they're asked. So the number one nonprofit like donation center in the U.S. is churches. And the reason that is, is there's a lot of churches who have a history of asking for a donation every week. The plate is passed in some cultures. Uh, Some people call this a tithe where there's a a commitment of 10% is given to the church or the community. Um, And it doesn't really matter what that is, but what you should hear in this is they're giving because they're being asked. Yeah. And um, if you've ever been part of a social organization that's raising money and you haven't been asked, sometimes you might have that feeling of like, well, I'm doing well. How come they didn't ask me? I'm class of 96. How come nobody emailed us? Right. And when that feeling starts to come up, just realize that what's happening is no one asked you and you're a little bit bitter. That means that we as sales leaders could take a cue and just ask for the deal more often. Think about that. I mean, how many times are we talking with somebody and not being specific and saying, Hey, I would like to ask for this meeting, you know, and if you're listening to this and you're somebody who's doing direct sales and you haven't before ask somebody and put them on the hook 
uh, one of my favorite on the hook questions is if, if we did X, whatever the offer is, would you sponsor a meeting with the budget holder? Now you have to use people's names because if you just say the budget holder, they'll be the last <laughs> In my case, I was selling to this client. His name was Brian. And um, he had a marketing VP who owned the budget that he was representing. They were both VPs. And so I knew they were peers in different departments, but this I knew this was coming out of the marketing budget. And so I just said, hey, Brian, we can concede the thing that he had asked for. And I said, and uh, if we do this, halfway through the engagement, it was a 90 day engagement as like a trial proof of concept. I said at day 45, would you sponsor a meeting with Jen to talk about go forward plan? Mm -hmm. Cause I knew that halfway through, I'd still had 45 days to save the account if it wasn't going well, renew the proof of concept. And I knew this was my way to the person who's creating, you know, and holding the budget, not, and maybe even the budget creator if the CMO came to the same meeting, but I could ask for that. And so that's an on the hook question. How can we get the economy moving right now? We have these sales skills. Let's ask for the question. We have the skills to be to mentor other salespeople around us, regardless of what level you're at. Share these sales skills. Someone in your life is going to have to take a sales job and they're going to look at it as I'm having to take a sales job. I wish I was in marketing, but I have to take an SGR job because I can't find any marketing jobs right now. When that happens, take the time to mentor. Show them how to ask these on the hook type questions. Show them how to do this. Uh, because this is the way that the economy does does restart. Mm, that is really good advice. And I like how you're putting words to how we can uh, improve our trial conversions as well. I know people are um, dramatically, in some cases, increasing uh, trial lengths. And so, you know, having that economic buyer on the hook for the next step and making sure that you're tracking, you have uh, aligned expectations and you're meeting those goals and giving yourself time to pivot if needed. So that's, that's a really good takeaway right there. Uh, thank you again to executive coach J. Ryan Williams for his insights and advice. Check out the show notes to get all of Ryan's fantastic recommendations, and you can book a 30-minute exploratory call with me from there as well. I help recurring revenue businesses get it together and grow through coaching, consulting, sales team recruiting, and as a fractional executive. We'll see you next time on sales in the subscription economy.